there's a difference between do-it-yourself and do-it-for-a-living. At The Home Depot, we get that. And we're here to help pros get the job done with the products and brands you trust. Technology to keep your job on track. Job site delivery to save you time. And bulk pricing on over 4,000 items every day to save you money. When you've got a job, we're on the job. The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Hi, buds. I hope you had a fun turkey holiday to those of you that celebrate. And now it's on to snow time holidays. Fun, 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 fun. Today, we're going to have some fun in the form of Sarah Golub, Todd Vanderwerf, and Chris Dole, the writers and creators of Arden. I talked to them for two hours just before Thanksgiving. That's how delightful they are. I ruefully slashed our conversation down to half that size and have uploaded it here for your delectation. That's just ahead, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. This week, we're continuing with Arden, the genre-bending screwball comedy mystery drama, and while I don't think this interview contains much in the way of spoilers, the more of the show you've heard, I think the more you'll appreciate the content of this interview. But as of this recording, the first season is up and complete, so go on and listen, and then come on back. I had a lovely time talking to Sarah, Todd, and Chris about everything under the sun. Their origins as writers, their different styles, Sarah's participation in an intersectional feminist sketch comedy group, and the ethics of true crime media. Let's take a listen. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, Sarah. Welcome, Todd. Welcome, Chris. Oh. Hello. It is a, it's a pleasure to have you all here on Radio Drama Revival. Um, I, I'd like to first ask how the three of you met. Uh, I, that's a long, yeah, story. <laughs> actually kind of uh, is. <laughs> this is Todd. Um, I actually, I met Chris, uh, posting online, like probably 12 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had, when he moved out to LA, we, we hung out some, uh, he actually stayed in my apartment at one point. Um, and, uh, and then we, we did some writing together, uh, over the years. Uh, and that kind of was, was where, Arden was birthed was out of that relationship uh, and then Chris knew Sarah. yes I did not know Sarah before she started yeah. this project, yes so yeah I, I'll let you explain how yeah that this is this is Chris hi and um yeah so I met Sarah uh, a few years ago when she moved out to LA uh, what a, a very good friend of mine from college uh, Laura Stratford yeah when Sarah moved out to LA Laura sort of got in touch with me on Facebook and said, hey, you two should meet. And we met and we bonded over our mutual belief that Barry Allen on CW's The Flash is the world's greatest supervillain. And yeah, he is a monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that where the CW jokes come from in the show, is the two of you? Uh, uh, yes. Definitely us. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I've been you know, familiar with Sarah's writing because she has, she's part of this really fun sketch team called the Burbs out here in LA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been to a... You're doing mm-hmm. my plugs. Uh, you can see us the first Saturday <laughs> of every month at the Ruby LA. 
<laughs> 8 p.m., $5 at the door. We're very funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very reasonable. Yeah. It's an hour of comedy. <laughs> All that and intersectional, too? Mm-hmm. It's pretty great. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah, yeah I, have, I have questions about... Uh, about the burbs later for you, Sarah. Oh, great! Um, I love them. Uh-huh. I want to. I want to rewind a little bit. Mm-hmm. How? In what context uh, did did you, Chris, and Todd meet online? Like, what were you? What were you posting on? Okay, so the site. Um, go ahead. Yeah, the site is called Awards Watch. It okay. is yeah film, uh, television, music like discussion site that was you know primarily focused on awards like i i signed up because i was in 2005 because i was curious on how a history of violence and good night and good luck we're gonna do barky is the only person who cared about those two films (laughs) (laughs) um but they had this sort of section that was much more for like creative writing for people who wanted to be creative writers and uh you know, that's where I met Todd was through that section. Yeah, I had been there. Um, it's really, frankly, embarrassing how many of my professional relationships were formed at um, <laughs> at what was then called OscarWatch.com, um, including many people who wrote with me at um, the AV Club and some of the other sites I've worked for. And uh, then other people I don't have professional relationships with, but continue to work in like the field I'm in. And I bump into them at parties and we just sort of look the other way because we're both, we have this deep shame in our I love that so much. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, I, I, uh, that, that was kind of where I got to know, know Chris. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a a very strange competition um, that was in essence, you wrote a movie treatment and then cast it and like came up with like a costume designer for it and all this stuff. It's basically like fantasy football with film treatments. I love that so much. And like it it was an obscenely difficult thing to wrangle because like you had, it was basically making everybody read like 20 to 25 short stories and then not just read them but write reviews of them and like it always fell apart but uh you know at at the time I was working a job I hated so I had nothing else to do (laughs) um that kind of was the first place where I started to figure out um I would say actually how to write both critically and uh more artistically just in terms of like uh writing stuff that people would connect to or that would that would like make sense um because I had a, I had always wanted to be a writer of some sort, but uh, I also, you know, had not really put much thought into how to appeal to an audience other than myself and maybe my mom, uh, and that kind of was was the start of that. Sarah, what about you? What what corner of the internet did you hone your early writing skills on? Oh, uh, you'll never get me to admit that on on record. <laughs> I see. So archive of their own. I take it. Who's, what even <laughs> is that? <laughs> okay. I made a Twitter two years ago, and I've never been online before then. <laughs> the past is another country, Sarah. Let's move on. What's the <laughs> origin of this project? Like, how did this, how did Arden specifically begin to gestate? What are the things you were drawing from? Tell me about that. Um, I guess I guess technically the idea originated with me. Um, I 
had been started listening to some of the really like really like popular audio dramas the ones that like everybody knows like limetown and black tapes uh, and some of those shows um and bright sessions was pretty early in its run then but i was listening to that as well um and i just uh, listening to that and then listening to a couple of true crime podcasts Mm -hmm. made me sort of realize that the true crime format was so rigid that you could kind of have fun with it and like that was the the initial impetus for arden was what if it was you know basically serial but you have two competing co-hosts with different visions of the story and they sort of argue like they're in moonlighting so you know the the quick and dirty elevator pitch for it has always been serial meets moonlighting which has kind of stuck even as like the show has become less and less of a straight true crime parody than i think it was initially pitched sure as, but, and and let's let's uh, let's pause real quick for the kids that don't yeah. know about sybil shepherd and bruce willis <laughs> can, let's can we can we gloss moonlighting just real quick yeah 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 moonlighting is one of my favorite shows ever it's a series where bruce willis sybil shepherd play two characters named david and maddie maddie is a model who undergoes a financial basically her whole financial life collapses she discovers the only thing she still has is this detective agency she owns for some reason uh moonlighting detective agency which is run by bruce willis's character david and then like it's basically a weird goofy gloss on 70s pi shows uh but every week they solve a new case uh but they spend most of their time bantering and flirting and laughing at each other and the thing i've always loved about it is that any episode could become essentially anything. They did a black and white film noir. They did a Shakespeare episode. They did a musical episode. Um, it eventually like completely blew up and fell apart. But uh, for a while there, it was it was great fun. And it has that great Al Jarreau theme. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just so smooth. Uh, and I, the writing for it was kind of screwball comedy esque, and that has always kind of stuck in my head as somebody who saw it before. I saw the various screwball comedies it was ripping off. Like that was always, I always am writing a gloss on a gloss on a gloss of screwball comedy. <laughs> so uh, I think that, I think that shines through, but like, it, it's also like, um, I also was like really um, into the pod, this podcast called accused, which is not like a great true crime podcast, but it's definitely a true crime podcast. Okay. And like, a lot of what's in the show's initial structure like the episode where they drive and like time the drive that's directly lifted from accused because <laughs> like they do that in that show and it's it's just as exciting as it is on our sure. show but anyway i i, I so I, I brought that to chris because he and i were looking to develop some projects for uh some people that that were, were sort of interested and they were looking especially for like shorter form stuff and for um podcast ideas and this was the podcast idea that kind of stuck uh and and from there um you know it kind of took on a life of its own that this was in the uh the summer of 2016 that you know todd brought me this idea and i pretty much immediately sparked to it and um that and so like i thought about it from that sort of just initial serial meets moonlighting thing and, you know, I sort of looked up a little bit about 
Moonlighting, which I had seen some of and really enjoyed, but I did wasn't as deep into it as Todd was, and I discovered that it had drawn a lot of inspiration from uh, Taming of the Shrew in the initial David and Maddie hmm. relationship. So I thought about that, and then I pitched, um, "What if we do? What if the the two main characters are essentially?" Uh, Beatrice and Benedict from Much Ado About Nothing is, you know, a slightly more... Oh, e- is that the origin of yes. the name? Yes, it is. And also just a, a more fun dynamic than the Taming of the Shoe one. <laughs> sure. Yeah, less likely, to, less likely to get you written up as problematic in the pages of the Atlantic or the Huffington Post in the year of our Lord It would be very exciting if Huffington Post wrote an article about how we're problematic. That would... Yeah. I would be thrilled about it. So many people would listen. That'd be good. Teach the controversy. Sure. Yes. So, and then, so, so you pitched this idea, Chris, and then at what point, Sarah, did you come aboard and how did you change the, uh, the initial shape of the show? I have no okay. idea when in the process yeah, I, can talk I about... came aboard besides it was before okay, we yeah. writing it. <laughs> uh, so this was in the summer of uh, 2016 and we started sort of working on this a bit and we were trying to crack the pilot um, and then the uh, election happened and I think yeah. we just sort of hit a, like a slowdown at some point um, particular there was one aspect of that sort of initial setup that made me a little uncomfortable at the time which was that in our original pitch brenda was a man and so the story then when i was looking at it post-election i thought oh this is about a woman whose dream job is taken away by a less qualified man backed by a billionaire (laughs) and it's like i hard pass yeah um, right. yeah. But then, you know, the idea sort of stuck around for us. And it was like, this is still a good setup, but we need someone who is probably someone who can be a different voice, someone who is more talented with comedy, at least than I think I am. and um, But someone who can really specifically come in to sort of help us hone that, call us out on our bullshit you know, that sort of stuff. And I thought, who do I know who fits that description? And it was Sarah. Put that on my resume. Just, uh, I'm, I'm funnier than men and I'm mean to them. <laughs> <laughs> for a while, like for a while there, I also thought I was not going to be involved. I was just going to be like, I was going, I, we had written a pilot that mm-hmm. we used most of scattered across the first three or four episodes, but some of it I think didn't make it, uh, including there was a lot more mm-hmm. emphasis on like, Andy buying the station and like making that kind of comedic and wacky and Andy was more of a overt antagonist and that got softened uh, considerably both because of the election and because we didn't want to have right like we mm-hmm. already have crime and death we didn't need like an evil billionaire you know um, and uh, that that was that specifically was the thing that that Sarah kept pushing on I, I feel like there's just not enough wacky billionaires. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Andy still does evil things, like creates an enormous panopticon that like observes everybody in his yeah. life. Um, he does it for love, you know. So he, he doesn't. 
he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> I mean, that's why I've always... That's the justification I've given for the Panoptica that I create. <laughs> but yeah, so that uh, that was... like I wasn't sure I was going to be able to be involved because I had a lot of irons in the fire. Um, and then it worked out where I was able to help out a lot with the writing and production. Um, and my irons just got fiery uh, toward post. But so that that was another kind of reason that we thought, well, we need somebody else in the picture. Um, and Sarah is <laughs> the funniest writer I've ever worked with. Uh, and I think I think it sort of inadvertently ended up being like, like I was really invested mm-hmm. in the the mystery and the character aspects. Uh, and Sarah was both had a very different perspective on some of the story elements we wanted to include, which I some of sure. them I can't really talk about because they're pretty big spoilers but helped keep us honest in that regard but also i think brought so much raw comedy to it and so many great like especially the supporting cast she really made sing and then chris i think was really good about like the world building which is kind of weird because i don't think you'd think of arden as having a world you know because it's not set in outer space or something but like i mean there's there's so much like media ephemera that surrounds capsum i i believe it there's a whole body of work you needed to build yeah and chris was just like instrumental at building out the radio station and like the idea of what like wayface industries is and like turning this into a setting where you could have multiple seasons instead of just like kind of what again kind of what it started out as which was pretty straight true crime parody um, and it, I, I think the second half of season one becomes more of an ensemble comedy, and I don't know that it ever would have done that if it had just been like me writing it. For me, it was great because I got brought on this project after the mystery had already been planned out, which is absolutely the hardest part of coming up with the mystery is, you know, the clues and the characters and mm-hmm. what happened. And so, like, Chris and Todd came to me and were like, we just need you to write dialogue. And I was like, great, I'm in. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, Some parody ads. Let's do this. <laughs> oh, those are yours. Interesting. I have questions about those later. No, no, no. We switch off. We switch yeah. off. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, basically so, how the writing actually works on the show is we divide up who's yes. going to take the first pass on each episode. Okay. And then, yeah, fr- and then... Like that person sort of handles, okay, what's going to be revealed? What stage is Bia and Brenda's relationship is going to be? And you get the ad. Go crazy. It was, I like, I kind of wanted to know what was going on in the show, but I would always get like really excited when a new thing was in the draft to be like, what's the ad? (laughs) (laughs) So I want to talk. To, to you guys about I want to hear you talk about ethics and the way that like Bia and Brenda like to call out the discomfort of true crime entertainment yes. right so we've acknowledged that Serial is a part of DN- of Arden's DNA but there are other podcasts that you're responding to like uh, Accused and is there a little bit of my favorite murder in oh there? yes yes there is yeah like <laughs> I, I think what makes Arden work for me in a way that more direct serial parodies can't really get at, and I say this full disclosure, like, I've participated in a few. Like, I presented a direct serial parody uh, when I was the host of Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape. Like, I'm complicit <laughs> in this. Uh, I've wrestled with that. Um, but the, the difference between Arden and 
and a show like My Favorite Murder is that Julie Capsum and Ralph Montgomery aren't real. And whether they're dead or not, no spoilers, please. But when they do die, eventually, uh, when they go, they won't leave corpses as opposed to like a real person like Heyman Lee, the victim in Serial. And I want I just want to hear you talk about this universe of entertainment that we've built around mostly the corpses of white women. Well, this was something that was actually really important to me when writing this in terms of what she said is the ethics of it, which is that in this, and this sort of gets a bit back to the, some of the world building that Todd talks about, but to me, it was always about in this universe, this is a thing that really happened that really affected the survivors of it that left behind things that now we're coming into for nominally entertainment purposes. And like, we have to deal with that. We're making jokes about a thing that in real life would be horrific. Well, and uh, not just that, but like in the world mm-hmm. of Arden, Julie Capsum's disappearance has been made into mm-hmm. entertainment for 10 years. It, it has been a spectacle the mm-hmm. whole time. It's been a uh, whole industry, right? Like mm-hmm. they have yeah, all this... these, these books and things. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things, so when I first sort of was thinking about what's the crime here, because um, I, ha- I, I had the crime when I went to Chris, and it, I'm not going to say what real crime, It's because it's not even based on it. And I don't want to make it... I don't want to like send people down a rabbit hole trying to think they can solve Arden by looking up this real life crime. But there is a real story of a girl in her early 20s who suddenly, for no seemingly no reason, just took off in her car on a wintry day, drove the car into a tree, and then just seemingly vanished. And like Arden goes in vastly different directions from that. But, and like the thing that. That hit me was when I was looking into it because I thought it was kind of a cool case. This was like 10 years ago. Um, when I was looking into it, there's all these people who haven't just turned it into a cottage industry, but have like started this like whole thing where they like harass her family oh, members no. and like try to like try to solve this thing that the most obvious explanation is she wandered off into the woods and froze to death. Did that happen to Julie? You know, I'm not going to say that. That's why I don't want you to look up this real crime. But like that always hung heavily over my head that this real person, this real thing happened. And this real family that is grieving the loss of their daughter, their sister, their friend, their girlfriend, like is sitting there. And like every so often somebody from like a true crime blog calls and is like, hey, I think that, you know, her father killed her. Or I think that we need to look into the boyfriend. And, like, at a certain point, you just want peace. And, like, if you elevate that, if you make it not just some random college student, if you make that, like, a Hollywood starlet so the whole world is interested, like, like what does that look like? And I think that naturally leads you to ask about, like, right, what are the right ethics in this situation? But also I think just the idea that Bia is, like, a journalist makes you want to talk about that a little bit because... Journalists ostensibly have a code of ethics and uh, are supposed to abide by it. And don't always. Let's be nice about it. For these people, these are very real ramifications that do not 
go away, even if the case is solved. It's a very it's a very interesting tonal distinction that you're trying. It's like a very curious needle that you're trying to thread because you got this wacky happenstances going on, on on one hand, and then this really serious mordant thing. I just was gonna say, and I I think I would credit Sarah with a lot of this. I think that we were very good about if there was a joke about the crime itself, that joke was always centered on some aspect of the crime that had been sensationalized. You know, we have jokes about the identity of the torso, or we have jokes about the curse, but those are things that, like, either the media cooked them up, as it did in the case of the curse, or it's, like, in such an inherently weird and darkly funny thing that, like, probably people would crack jokes about it. And I think you'll see as we get deeper into this season, as we hit more serious themes, the show doesn't become a drama suddenly, but the jokes are so much more centered on the character mm-hmm. relationships between the people that work at the radio Yeah, station. it was uh, it was important to me that it, I I don't consider Arden a parody, right. just because the, the actual crime is not a joke. There's no part of the crime that we're making fun of. It's just that inherently funny characters are working on this project. Um, but yeah, Bea and Brenda are funny. The case is not funny. Sure. <laughs> and uh, that's just, yeah, always been an important distinction. <laughs> and I think that we were really helped by, you know, a character like Andy has ostens- has essentially nothing to do with the case and is inherently this wild, over-the-top comedic character. And the same kind of goes for someone like Rosalind. So we're helped in when we have an episode where it's more dramatic, we can essentially cut to them and just have them be goofy. And, like, you don't you don't um, trivialize our fictional crime. Do you, is there something inherently exploitative about true crime? Is there a way to, like, write about... Right? <laughs> Yeah. You're right. Yeah, no, I'm just... Yeah, you're doing okay. (laughs) No, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just sort of like... No, that's a question that I have been thinking a lot about while writing this show and listening to a lot of true crime shows. Like, you know, one that I really do think is a great show is In the Dark, which is... That's an amazing show. But that one... uh, that one's focus is more about systemic issues rather than here is the body of some unfortunate woman. Uh, let's talk about this for an hour, like that kind of thing. Yeah, I really feel like I f- In the Dark was a big touchstone for us because it was the show that Bia wanted to make <laughs> and didn't get a chance to. Um, sure. But also, like, uh, it's a show that uses the lens of we want to talk about a crime, like an exciting crime to talk about problems with the U.S. judicial system. I think Serial Season 3 is doing very similar things uh, and really working well. Um, and, but yeah, there's a lot of podcasts out there that, you know, um, just turn the true crime world. And I shouldn't just say podcasts. It's, it's documentaries. It's... it's uh, it's books, it's all sorts of things that turn the idea of true crime into salacious entertainment. And I, I don't think that's bad. Like, I think there are ways to have fun with that, but it, it does it does turn my stomach sometimes. 
sort of going along with that, I've always found like those shows that do like the reenactments. There's something there's something oh. a little weird about that. I'm gonna be honest. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not sure I have a deeper point of that, but I've always just thought that to be a very strange thing that we produce things that are literally just you hire some actors and then you do these like weird gauzy shots of you know this this horrible crime that's just a, a recreation of it it's like what who had that idea and why did they have that idea i think great true crime stuff reaches out to talk about society um another example i give is the charlie manson season of Karina Longworth's uh, You Must Remember This is ostensibly true crime, but is so much more about like what it was to live in Los Angeles at that period of time and like reaches out to touch all of these aspects of late 60s America. Um, and I think that that's where great true crime lives, but it's very difficult to hit that mark. And it's so much easier to collect money from ads just, you know, not hitting that mark. <laughs> what were you trying to subvert about the true crime genre in this podcast? I think a lot of the stuff we just talked about in terms of mm -hmm. considering the journalistic ethics of it, but also I think just like, and this is tr t tough to talk, this is tough to talk about without spoiling stuff, but I think the idea of the victims as real people is very important to us mm -hmm. in the show um and in sort of hopefully you know the vision for whatever the show is going forward but i would say we also wanted to subvert the idea of the infallible journalist slash host it's not that we you know i, I think b i think bia is genuinely a good journalist but i think that when you put all these other voices in there with her you get more of a consideration of what happens when you're putting together a story like this. And just the idea of a show like this having two people arguing at its center is, I think, inherently a little bit subversive in terms of that genre. We're always presented with the idea that, you know, this voice, we have to absolutely trust this voice. And so bringing in someone who directly challenges it and says that's not necessarily what happened is it's something we don't often think about in terms of like okay you know here's our story that's being presented why are they presenting the story this way just in terms of bia uh being a good journalist i think i think she's a very i think she's intelligent and a hard worker but what i saw develop over the writing of these episodes is kind of this idea that like Without Brenda, Arden would not be a very good show. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. uh, she needs... When we, we took away the editors, so she can't sound smart all the time. She can't sound right and practiced and indifferent. Uh, we get to see her, you know, get flustered by facts and thrown off in interviews and get really passionate because she's a very passionate person and I think she she thinks of herself as an objective reporter and she's not. <laughs> she's personally invested herself a ton in this case of a person she's never met just because she grew up watching Julie. Um, so I think we support that perhaps like artistically but I think I 
I find a lot of comedy in just the idea of like, let's take this host down a peg <laughs> by being like, you know what? You don't sound so good off the cuff yeah, either. Uh, <laughs> so at the same time, it was this was again something we had to balance. It couldn't just be Bia is wrong and Brenda is right the whole time. Right. Yeah. Right. Brenda is maybe not a great cop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I feel like it goes without saying that Brenda does not know what she's doing. <laughs> so I have a, I have a couple of character questions. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Chris, this is for yes. you. Um, so you've worked as a development assistant yes. before. To what extent does your experience in those roles that you had uh, impact the character of Rosalind? Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, so Rosalind is basically sort of like us riffing on, you know, there's always in like the noir or the detective show, there's that character who the, who's the assistant to the detective who always seems like she has to have her, she always, she always has to be like, just Johnny on the spot for everything. And of course I saw this all the time in Los Angeles have had to be it all the time. So like that, our idea was what if we blow that up to like cartoonish levels? Like our running joke (laughs) is that in the background of the show, Rosalind is this universe's James Bond, who is just off having like insane adventures anytime the camera is not recording her it's like okay what if we take this person who is never given their credit is always sort of like downtrodden and expected to be perfect at everything and off screen they are the most amazing person who has ever lived (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so that's I would say um, where my experience as a development assistant of just sort of like seeing all these assistant types, being around them for years, and sort of having had to be that person. It's like, what if we? It's just like, let's just make the best person in the world that person. And the actress is kind of doing a Rosalind Russell voice, right? Yeah, one one of the things I love about Shannon's performance, Shannon Esterbrook plays Rosalind, uh, is that she really captures Rosalind's world weariness in a way that I didn't quite see on the page. That like um, she is the most competent person alive, and she's sick of being the most competent person alive. Sarah, you studied yes. at the Tisch School of the Arts, and you focused on television comedy, and also you write, as we've discussed, with a sketch team called The Burbs. Um, can you tell me about how those two different styles of writing play into how you approach Arden? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, well, one, Arden is, we all have a bit of a television background or an aspirational television background. So Arden has written the length and breadth of a television show when after I listened to a lot of audio, other audio dramas, I realized we need not have done that. <laughs> we easily could have been doing 10, 15 minute episodes if we had thought to do that. <laughs> uh, but also I feel, I feel very comfortable in the uh, hour long 
world. Ah, sure. I'm not selling myself here. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So I guess I guess my what I'm trying to get at with that question is you've got this one style of comedy writing that is that allows you to instantly take the temperature of an audience. You can you can gauge whether or not a joke lands in sketch comedy in a way that you maybe couldn't. Maybe you can at a table read for television. And I'm just I'm just curious how you marry these two distinct forms of comedy writing together for the purposes of making something that you're you're barely going to see the audience impact relative to the way that you would see the audience impact in a sketch at the Ruby. Ah, yes. Um Well, television writing is um it's great for structure and character. Uh Arden is all about its characters fundamentally and then sketch is great for just um I think sketch helped me with Arden in just you don't have a lot to work with and you gotta you gotta make it happen mm. <laughs> we're just like we got a show going up we don't have any props but we need to convince the audience that we are we're in a battle or we're at a restaurant or we're someone's getting mugged or thrown off a ship uh and just sort of that that gameness of like this is what we're doing this is the reality and we got to set it up very clearly so everyone knows what's going on even mm -hmm. though they may not be able to see it this is the situation and also let's do it as quickly and with as much energy as mm -hmm. we can <laughs> and chris are you the one of the group with the most classic audio theater knowledge is that accurate Ye I mean, I'm I'm going to confidently say yes. <laughs> okay. I will confidently agree with him. <laughs> yeah, no, I, whenever we would go on drives of more than like 45 minutes, generally my parents would put on like a, one of their Prairie Home Companion collections. Like, so huge childhood touchstone. Uh, they got me sure. the uh, sort of Star Wars radio dramas when NPR adapted those uh for um yeah back in like the early 90s they got me those and i wore those out i listened to like full cast productions of like the hobbit and lord of the rings and old abbott and costello tapes and tapes of speeches from like the 1940s and 50s so My God. yeah uh mercury theater on the air one of these days yeah <laughs> We should, you and I should have a conversation about the complicated role that Guy Noir Private Eye <laughs> played in both of our development as audio dramas. Yeah, probably. Uh, and the uncomfortable relationship we may both have with Garrison yeah, Keeler. Yeah, yes. Creepazoid. But that's a conversation for another time, perhaps. But yeah, yeah. So I really grew up listening to a lot of audio drama. And so it was actually very important to me when Todd pitched the idea to me that, okay, if we're going to do an audio drama, this has to be an audio drama. If you sort of get my... What did you mean by well, that? Well, then that we have to write a thing that is specifically meant for the form of audio and audio storytelling so that... You know, we tr trying to have like jokes that are specifically like audio jokes, like aural emoji in episode three, 
was Mm -hmm. specifically a thing. Okay, what is an insane thing we can just suddenly do that is solely sound-based? And I sort of thought about it and just wrote that ad off, like... (laughs) <laughs> just like okay let's do something that is specifically about this form um sure mm-hmm. todd i want to hear about your journey from television well it sounds from let me start over because it sounds like you've been doing fiction writing since you started writing but yeah. i've always primarily thought of you as a a critic as a journalist I don't know why uh, you'd think that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no. I, I want to talk to you about, about straddling those two worlds. Yeah, that's a tricky thing. Um, when I, I sort of mentioned I had a lot of irons in the fire, and one of them was yeah, I just published my, my first book, which is a collection of criticism. Like, <laughs> So as Arden was launching this, this elaborate fictional thing that I had a hand in, so was this book. So it was like both of my lives were were rising up together as one to like, I don't even know. Uh, one of the things that I have found very interesting is I really struggle to talk about wanting to write fiction, wanting to create art, to be really pretentious about it, while also being a critic because sort of the stereotype is critics are failed artists. And I don't know a critic who that's true of. Like the impulse within myself that drives writing something like Arden or some of the other projects I've worked on is so very different from the impulse that critiques stuff. Now I do suspect that when I write criticism, I write criticism with the brains of somebody with the brain of somebody who's like, I'm interested in how this, you know, how I might approach writing this. I I I, I will admit that. But you know, criticism is such a different thing. It's it's kind of it's kind of left brain where um, you're almost trying to solve. I hope I use the right side of the brain, but you're almost trying to solve a math equation of like why does this work? Why doesn't this work? And I think the best criticism is artful in a way that I've always been inspired by. Like I I know so much about Roger Ebert's life because I've read so many of his movie reviews. But like that's not what you'd expect. Um, one of the uh, sort of one of the great truisms of writing criticism is that you are really just writing a long series of personal essays about yourself in the guise of writing about somebody else's work, and like that has always appealed to me. So I, I guess I think people either expect them to be deeply intertwined or ex- expect them to be like wildly separate. And it's kind of both at the same time, which is an unsatisfying answer, I know. That's not unsatisfying at all. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, though, uh, to gutter jump real quick. The, the ads that Andy Wayface subjects Bia and Brenda to. <laughs> how, I, I, I recognize that the, the writing duties for these are distributed evenly across the three of you, but I'm curious... Um, how many are derived from your experience, Todd, reading ads for your Vox podcast? What? <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Now you don't have to name any names. I understand that you know that 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 companies buy ads for you know six months, twelve months. Like I don't, I don't want to imperil any of your contracts. 
Yeah. But I've also had to read my fair share of ads <laughs> that I thought were ridiculous. I will I will tell you this. Uh, the one ad I, I know that I wrote is the one in the in the first episode, the socks ad. Um and I wrote that thinking I was kind of thinking about things like HelloFresh, like these ridiculous we'll bring this to your home kits. And I wrote that back when we were writing the first version of the pilot, which was summer of 2016. And then imagine my surprise when like that exact service came into existence. <laughs> like you now can like subscribe to a sock service or something. And right. I wasn't trying to parody anything. I was trying to be intentionally ridiculous. And like uh, that was very strange to me. But yes, I will say that there are some ads I've written that are inspired by uh, not my my sponsor specifically, but just by like the fact that I have to read the same ad copy week after week after week, and I have to do it new every time because that's what they request. And sure. like, just the like I the thing I love about like I love Michelle's performance; she is so wonderful. But her ad voice is so perfectly. This is the third read of this ad that I've had to do. <laughs> And now I'm talking like this because I don't sure. want to make the sponsor mad, you know. She she has some incredible dramatic performances, but just yeah, absolutely my favorite uh, is just every time Michelle, you can hear how much Bia hates doing this ad, <laughs> and it blows me away every time. Yeah, I'm not sure if this was in, just internal in the writers' room or this got said to her at some point but i think we gave her a specific i think at one point a very specific podcast host was mentioned who sounds like she has a gun to her head for every single ad read she has ever done oh no <laughs> yes sarah i have a question for you about the ruby uh, so yes. I, was, I was poking around on the website earlier, and the philosophy of the Ruby LA is that it's this intersectional feminist, inclusive comedy theater that punches up. I want to ask you about how that philosophy gets activated for this project. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> I, I think just being who I am, uh, I'm a woman, I'm asexual, mm -hmm. my dad's not from America, uh, just... Anything I write has a sort of outsider perspective. I just, it doesn't, not that it doesn't occur to me to punch down, because I've obviously, we all have written things we regret. <laughs> We're all learning, but it, it, I think I'm just not coming at it from that place of needing to stop myself from punching down. So I don't really have an articulate answer to that, because I'm like, well... Why would we make fun of a dead teenage girl? That would be awful. Like, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> it was definitely important with the Julie stuff to have, that I would weigh in and just sort of be like, here's, sure. here's the teen girl that if I was a teen girl, I would be obsessed with. Here's, here's how people would treat her. Julie's out of control when she's just like a person who smoked a cigarette or were addressed to a party. <laughs> sure. And, yeah. Well, I get what what interests me most is the idea of punching up within this genre, right? Mm -hmm. Like when we're, when we're talking about 
dead teenagers or teenage presumed dead teenagers. Um, the, I think there can be a real temptation to make judgments on those people um, in, in a way that I feel like the wider world of Arden does, but that Bia and Brenda stay away from. Yeah, I think Bia and Brenda keep themselves honest in that regard because um, Bia uh, relates more to Julie. Uh, I think she sees herself as this... Uh, as a teenage girl saw herself in this other teenage girl, and I think Brenda sees herself more in Ralph as a working class person who sort of got steamrolled by the wealthy Capsums, because while it, in a much less significant way, uh, Brenda was also kind of destroyed by the Capsums. So I think they, the feminist aspect and the the class aspect uh is each getting represented by each of them uh, in cool. a way that was fun to play with because sometimes it would be like well okay julie was a billionaire or like oh, okay but like ralph was kind of a creepy guy and just sort of having those two voices actually be able to argue with each other in real time <laughs> For us, as we as the writers are working out, like, who's the sketchy one in this situation? Sure. So Arden, the sh- you know, within the world of the show, it's sponsored by an eccentric billionaire. Are y'all trying to tell me that podcasts aren't this hugely <laughs> profitable endeavor? <laughs> I mean... Because let me tell you, I've got a lot of money riding on this thing. <laughs> Oh, boy. So do you want the joke answer or do you want the actual, like, behind-the-scenes, like, production answer of how this show got made? I mean, obviously I want both. Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, in the world of Arden, like, our solution for any problem is basically that Andy always has more money. Like, think of it about (laughs) and Andy has more money. Like, there is a... Yeah, there's a lie that I I don't recall if it's still in the show or not where I that I wrote that he that basically he could buy out God like if he needed so I think it's buy buy out the universe yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um Yeah, but so like in the world like this is just Andy just really loved doing this shit and just going in and like, okay, I'm going to fund this thing. I love doing this. And yeah, the uh, real like production story is that, I mean, this is a wholly independent self-funded show. Right. Yeah, which I mean, has required us to dig deep and, um, you know, not just not just to hire people, but to, you know, do some things ourselves that we would have probably at the beginning of the process thought we could find uh, people to do for us. Um, yeah, that. Like, like what? What's an example of that? Uh, Chris has edited two of our episodes. <laughs> and so far that <laughs> yeah i um do very little about audio editing 
uh, <laughs> last spring when, um, you know, we had this great sound recordist engineer who, for very good professional region, reasons, eventually had to uh, step away from the project. Um, you know, she, she recorded basically all our episodes, did a fantastic job. She was originally going to edit all of them as well, but was unable to do so. Uh, initially at the time, the last spring, she just needed someone to put together rough cuts or assembly cuts of all the episodes. And I said, you know, I did like recordings for a management company that I worked for. I recorded like meetings and stuff and sort of edited those down and that kind of thing. I can do that. So from basically episode three on, I have put together the rough cut of every episode. And then uh, she officially had to drop out. And uh, in addition, we did have some other very talented epi editors come on to help us, like Linus Edwards and Bridge Gein, of course, has directed. Sure. My friend uh, Christina Holleran, who's done some audio editing, did that. But she did episodes two and four. But I had to come in and finish the edit on episode one. I edited episode six, episode eight, and we'll be editing episode 10 as well from basically not knowing how to do this at all. So, I, <laughs> And you, you took some courses on, was it yeah, Linda? Yeah, I took courses on Linda because it was like, <laughs> shit, I need to know how to actually do this because in our schedule crunch, no one else is going to be able to do this or we can't, we don't have the money to pay someone several hundred dollars to come in and do all this. And so Andy is Andy Wayface is kind of the manifestation of like a desire to have some kind of daddy Warbucks figure <laughs> come along and rescue all of you <laughs> from this drudgery is though is, is what I'm hearing. He, uh, <laughs> To, re to return to the end of it all, I like that he is apparently investing heavily in radio journalism, which is like, I don't know, you know, pretty far down the totem totem pole of, of where you would be spending your money. Um, one thing that one thing that I do wonder about is like, at a certain point, if we're going to make this a sustainable enterprise, we will have to ex probably accept money from outside advertisers. And like, I don't know how that's going to work. Like, we can't have Michelle just suddenly be nah. like, oh, and now we're going to talk about, you know, Blue Apron. Like, because uh, it's so coded within the show that all the ads are mm -hmm. ridiculous. So. Right. Uh, but we'll we'll cross that bridge when Blue Apron offers us millions of dollars. So this project, to me, has a foot, at least, mm, the way it comes across uh, is, is that it has a, a foot in each of the two U.S. podcasting worlds, Right. The big network podcasts from venture-backed startups or public media and the world of independent audio fiction podcasting. Um, or at least between the three of you, you have exposure to both of those worlds. And I'm, I'm curious, are there trends that you've noticed in each of these places? There is definitely a trend within journalism podcasting toward more story-driven stuff. And I don't, by that I mean um, journalistic, you know, uh, nonfiction, but documentary presentation. Um, 
like that is increasingly what we're doing at Vox. Um, you know, there's just one of the things that we realized with, I think you're interesting, my other podcast I host, uh, which, you know, has found a wonderful audience, but it took a while to get there, is the market is so saturated with interview shows, with panel shows, you know, that there is now sort of this hunger for audio content, but, uh, you know, there is this push toward storytelling and I have some larger thoughts about like the world of audio drama but I, I want to hear what Chris and Sarah have to say before I talk for 35 minutes again um yeah something I've over the last two years as I've been getting more involved in Arden I've dived deeper into audio dramas uh I was familiar with Welcome to Night Vale and Limetown but like just getting into the more independent stuff and it is it's so great what mm -hmm. A diverse community it is and the way they're not beholden to well this makes someone uncomfortable because you know if we have queer characters or whatever it we're gonna lose x amount of ad dollars because it's like there's no ad dollars it doesn't matter uh, no one's making money off of this so just do whatever you want um which is a blessing and a curse but in the terms of it being a blessing it means that you know when we make Ben into Brenda, it help it helps the show because it now we're the thing that would have hurt it if we were a TV show is helping us as an audio drama because we're new. Uh, it's not something you've seen before. Uh, I just I love it. <laughs> no, I would I would say that way back about a year ago, uh, an agent I sometimes talked to for my other job for my journalism stuff was like. Uh, called me up and was like, I hear podcasts are the hot new thing. And can you maybe send me some good podcasts? So I, I, I sent this person uh, some uh, some audio dramas that I liked. And like, they were like, I don't know that I could sell any of these as a TV show. And I was like, that's why I like them, <laughs> you know? Um, in addition to the aspect of there's a lot more diversity of perspective within audio dramas, the best audio dramas are specifically thought of for this format and like turning them into a TV show means radically rethinking how they work. Right. Um, and that's exciting to me. Right. There's also the, the way we're not mm -hmm. structurally beholden to stuff because while we, yeah. Yeah. Odin has a more procedural structure than, uh, Odin has a similar structure. Uh, Odin has a similar procedural structure. <laughs> Um, to a, a TV uh, crime procedural, but at the same time we can do something like episode six, which is just there's no crime. It's the, we're just letting the characters loose on the world, and we can do that because we're no one's making us do anything. It's totally sure. under our control, creatively. Yeah, and like we do have our episodic touchstones, like the ad. You have sort of like this episode is brought to you by blah 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 blah. blah by Wayface Industries, the good people, like that kind of thing. But even as we go forward, we do get to play with those more and more in a way that we wouldn't necessarily be able to on a show structure or like on a, on a TV show. Right. There's, there's no limit to how ridiculous or how serious mm -hmm. we need to get. <laughs> mm -hmm. I would also like to say... Um, oh, sorry. Uh, I'd also like to say um, 
in relation to what Chris was talking about and just um, the communities that audio drama appeals to more is uh, we did have conversations when um, when the host became two women who, in order to fall in love, would both be queer women, uh, just sort of how we would incorporate that into the show uh, naturally, because I think, because when it was a man and a woman, we just sort of never needed to address it, and now there needed to actually be, we needed to take it seriously. Uh, we didn't want to, like, have like a scene where someone's like here's my deal but it was important that early on as soon as possible brenda mentions ex-girlfriends just because that's what would happen uh yeah and at at a certain point we need to like clarify that like bia is bisexual like we like in a way that yeah we wouldn't have had to which is really i don't know i don't know what that says but it says something yeah, it was, again, just the idea of wanting, if we're going to do these things, we have to do them right. We okay. have to do them from a place of empathy and yeah. just make sure there's a real heart behind it. Like, it can't just all be laugh, laugh, laugh. It just comes back <laughs> to the characters and taking them as seriously and as empathetically as possible. Sure. And thinking about how those changes actually change who the character is as a person, we we couldn't just do like a find replace for Brenda. It we actually had to like as, as a lesbian cop in a small town, like who is that person? Because that person is different than a male cop in that small town. It wow. uh, we had to like mm-hmm. take it seriously, also from like it being true to the characters and it informing the characters. And the way that they interact with the world. <laughs> I will say that a blessing was that we decided to set the show, the the that stuff in Humboldt County, which is one of the most like laissez-faire places on the planet Earth. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that because it's rare to see a show that is, you know, about Hollywood, quote unquote, that incorporates other regions of the state of California, especially Humboldt County, way up north. Um, and I'm curious if any of you have spent time in far northern California. Todd, I know that you used to work for a newspaper in the southeast in Inland Empire. Yeah. Uh, I just feel like I feel like these are regions of California that don't often get a lot of representation in fiction. And I wanted to hear from the three of you about those choices. Um, I have I spend have spent a lot of vacation time in Eureka. It's one of my favorite parts of the state. Um I get up there a lot, uh, and one of the uh, one of my great Eureka stories is my wife and I had an Airbnb, and we were just chilling, like uh, watching a movie or something at like two in the morning, and somebody tried to get in, like somebody was like rattling the <laughs> doorknob trying to open the door, uh-huh. and we were talking with somebody the next day at the coffee shop when we were getting coffee because we had convinced ourselves it was just air. Uh, like like just the wind, you know, <laughs> the classic thing. She was like, oh, no, there's tweakers that just wander around here and try to get in. And like a lot of those places aren't locked up very well. So some nights they just can. So they probably just thought they were going to find a nice warm bed. And it's like that made it into the show, I think. Oh, yeah. It's there at the <laughs> yeah. end of episode one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, that, yeah, that that to me, um, A, it was important to me to have it 
be not set in a major metro area as somebody from a rural area, um, but also like be you wanted to have that aspect of Julie like drove so far away from Los Angeles so quickly and like Eureka Crescent City is kind of your natural destination for that. So that, I I think I think that the Humboldt County of it all is is largely me. Yeah, I've just been picturing Vermont. Ever... I've just been writing it like it's Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. Oh my god, it's after midnight for me. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I didn't even notice. No, this has been so much fun. Uh, it's a daylight saving. Yeah. I don't get you. We haven't even talked about our composer, Chris Hatfield. Our is so like, good. who. My God, he is coming up 